0: I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. It's Black History Month, but on this edition of Making Connections News, we're focusing not on history, but on current black lives and why they matter for all of us. First, we have an interview with Kentucky State Representative Attica Scott, who talks about legislation she has filed in response to the police killing of Breonna Taylor last March as well as her hopes for building a movement of Kentuckians across the state who are working for policies that build thriving communities everywhere. We then hear an interview with Afrolatchian author and educator Crystal Wilkinson that Kelly Haywood and I recorded in 2016, just as Wilkinson's novel, The Birds of Opulence, was coming out. Finally, we revisit Pastor Edward Palmer and his comments on overcoming racism through Policy Actions, a presentation that was recorded at the Kentucky Center for Economic Policies virtual conference in January. Here is Attica Scott, recorded from her home in Louisville. Well, thank you so much for um, being with us on this icy, snowy morning in Kentucky, Um, connecting Louisville and Whitesburg and Eastern Kentucky. And we sure appreciate all your efforts that you make to do that.
1: Thank you so much, Mimi. I appreciate the opportunity. Again, I believe this is how we, we build across Kentucky, having these kind of conversations with one another. So I represent District 41 in Louisville. And so for folks who've you know been to Louisville, it stretches. It's a long salamander-shaped district across the city. It goes all of the way east and all of the way west. So I've got a lot, a little bit of a, a lot of things in District 41. Um, I was elected in uh, November 2016, sworn in in January 2017. So this is my fifth session in Frankfort. Um, I was born and raised in Louisville, but I wanted to go away to college and I wanted to go to a historically black college. So I went to Knoxville College in East Tennessee. So I lived in Knoxville for 14 years. My kids were born in Knoxville um, and I have deep roots there. I did a lot of my anti-racism work at the Highlander Center. So, you know, I've got deep roots here in Louisville and deep roots in uh, Knoxville in East Tennessee.
0: Well, then you you have a sense of our Appalachian Mountains, too, having, uh, well, Knoxville's in Appalachia and,
1: That's and right. North
0: Islander out in the country there.
1: That's right, exactly. So, you know, I, I have a a love for Appalachia. Um, My first session in Frankfurt, one of my closest uh, colleagues was Representative Angie Hatton and and Representative Chris Harris, of course, and we just made a a very quick connection. And um, I became one of the the few, if in some cases, only urban legislator who would sign on to some of their bills um, related to issues that specifically impacted Appalachia, especially environmental issues.
0: Yeah, and maybe we can talk about a little later. But it seems we have an unfortunate divide in Kentucky between urban and rural that mm-hmm. we need to bridge. But so tell me, um, you one of the things uh, I admire about you is your willingness to file all kinds of wonderful uh, pieces of legislation every session that we have. And I know you've got some really important ones you've been fi- you've filed. So could you tell me a little bit about what's high on your your agenda this session?
1: I certainly will. And, you know, I follow you on social media, follow Apple Shopping. Y'all have just done an amazing job of lifting up the stories of Black folks in Appalachia um, and highlighting the stories of young Black people. And that's just been such a a heartwarming uh, message to see throughout the year. Apple Shop's not like only in February. Y'all are like throughout the year, right? So, you know, thank you so much for that. And I really, I know that some of the bills that I'm working on will be really important to folks because they impact all of Kentucky. So my number one priority is Brianna's law for Kentucky to restrict the use of no-knock search warrants. And this is an issue that it's hard to find anyone who doesn't agree with the fact that we do need to restrict these no-knock search warrants. And it grew out of Brianna Taylor and her murder on Friday, February, Friday, March 13th, 2020. Um, as a result of a no-knock search warrant. And these search warrants hurt the people in their homes, but they're also dangerous for law enforcement. We just saw uh, what happened in Florida um, with two federal agents who were issuing uh, a no-knock search warrant and and they were uh, fatally wounded. So they're dangerous. Mimi, when I filed the bill in August of last year, I was contacted by people in Appalachia and rural Western Kentucky who said, Thank you, because we need to do something about sheriff's officers who are also using these no-knock search warrants. So people across Kentucky support this idea.
0: And and what would the bill do exactly?
1: Sure. So Brianna's Law for Kentucky, it would, number one, restrict the use of no-knock search warrants. Um, You you won't be able to just get them uh, because uh, you suspect that someone is dealing drugs, but... You're not sure. And why are we putting people's lives at risks, risk for minor and petty drug offenses? Not to say that people shouldn't be held accountable, but seriously, is it is it something that we want to put people's lives at risk for? The other is that it would mandate alcohol and drug testing when officers are involved in deadly incidences like what happened to Brianna Taylor. Your folks will probably know that one officer wandered off for over an hour and then came back with no valid excuse or reason for why he had just wandered off for over an hour, left the scene of a crime for over an hour. Um, And then it would also uh, mandate the use of some kind of video recording of uh, when a search warrant is being uh, delivered because we gotta make sure that we have evidence that everything happened uh, following protocol, that everything happened following proper procedure. So those are the three main components of Brianna's Law for Kentucky.
0: That's great. And and what's the um, status of that law right now in the legislature?
1: So unfortunately, um, the supermajority has a new rule that they implemented this session where they don't automatically assign a bill to committee. So this is the first time that's happened since I've been in Frankfurt. So right now the bill is not in a committee at all. It's in limbo on the internet. And that's unfortunate because This is a a cry for justice from people who are often ignored by our legislative body. And it would just seem like after the insurrection on January 6th in D.C., after um, all of the conversations around racial justice, justice, that our legislative body would hear a bill that across Kentucky people have been crying out for. Organizations like Hood to the Holler are working on this. Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Um, Of course, the ACLU of Kentucky. We have groups across Kentucky who are um, really working to get their legislators to support Brianna's Law for Kentucky. Well, one other bill that I really thought that um, folks who are tuning in would be interested in is my uh, student journalist, Freedom of the Press bill. Students from Lexington, Louisville, Bullock County, they all came to me in 2020 early on and asked if I would file a bill to protect their freedom uh, of speech as student journalists. And we have since found that students across Kentucky are wanting a piece of legislation like this. I believe it's important to listen to our young people. And you know when a bill makes sense, when it's constitutional, when it really does support their leadership development as young people, I'm all about it. So it's something that I really do think that young people who are tuning in in Appalachia um, will want to get behind. If you are uh, interested in the student uh, journalist Freedom of the Press bill, please reach out to me. Let's talk. I want to hear your story. And I want to get you connected to the other young people who are leading this effort.
0: So another uh, bills, a number of bills that I know you've been involved in and that we're um, very interested in, in in this part of the state as well, are deal with maternal health issues. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about some of those?
1: Certainly, and I, I wanna start by acknowledging our uh, Kentucky House uh, Democratic Women's Caucus a couple of weeks ago, filed a whole package of bills related to maternal and infant health and it's called the Maternal and Infant Health Project. And so I've got a few bills that are connected to that. My top priority in that package is the Maternal Care Act. Your listeners probably know that black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. That includes right here in Kentucky. And so it's for a number of reasons. Some of them are uh, economic and social factors and institutional and systemic racism in healthcare. I think by now, most people know that medical trauma is real, that this country has a history of exploitation of black bodies in the medical field. And we haven't really reckoned with that. We haven't healed from that. And so the Maternal Care Act mandate um, institutional systemic racism training for healthcare professionals so that they can address their own biases and their own prejudices that they bring, including judging people based on their zip code, based on where they live. I know folks in Appalachia know what that's like to be judged based on where you live or based on your uh, educational background or based on how much money you make. You shouldn't be judged on any of those things. When you come in for a healthcare, you should get the care that you need and deserve. Um, far too often, Black women's pain is not taken seriously. Um, we've seen it doesn't even matter if you're a Beyonce or a Serena Williams. They had healthcare issues with their pregnancies, weren't taken seriously, and they had to advocate for themselves and their health. Imagine they have to do that. The rest of us certainly um, have to do it, and we don't have the the same kind of access that they have. So. That's um, the Maternal Care Act. And and I I just wanted to to add um, for folks that I truly believe when we address issues in maternal and infant health as it relates to um, black mamas and and, um, Latinx mamas, that we're gonna make healthcare better for all mamas. Like we're we're, uh, going to make sure that all mamas get the quality care that they deserve and that they need to have healthy pregnancies.
0: That's a really important point, I think, Attica, because um, we, of course in Eastern Kentucky, we don't have a very large population of African-American or Latinx folks. And so we sometimes are like, why why should I care? Or why does mm-hmm. this matter for our community? But I think um, what you're talking about is really important to recognize.
1: Well, and, and I believe that's how we build our collective power. We have all of these divides that, you know, mainstream media has tried to create and, you know, lifelong politicians have tried to create. But the reality is we have a lot more in common from urban and rural than we have that's different. And if we build our collective power across Kentucky, we can make a difference for all of our lives so that we don't only survive, but we thrive. We all deserve to thrive.
0: I know that was a great lesson I took from um, Anne Braden was that, yeah. that the changes that came about in the say the civil rights movement, they didn't, uh, they, they bettered everybody. They gave mm-hmm. every, except for maybe the
1: wealthiest most powerful people who had to give up a little bit. Well, you know, and I'm not sure that they gave up enough to even make a difference for them, right? <laughs> so, you know, we, we gotta keep pushing y'all cause we deserve the best, all of us do. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, I did want to ask you, it was really wonderful to see the outpouring of support for Justice for Brianna and Black Lives Matter in rural Kentucky, in a lot of small towns, a lot of Appalachian towns. And if you had any advice on, you know, where we go from there, you know, it's, it's great to get out and um, show you, to rally and show your support, but, but what, what do we do next? What do we do every day?
1: Keep going folks, keep going. That's the message um, from our young leaders here in Louisville um, who are on the front lines for justice, keep going. I thought it was so um, beautiful and powerful to have people who would say things, people in Appalachia who would say things like, I thought I was the only one, you know, who was who was committed to and fighting for justice. And then I went to this rally and there were dozens of people and hundreds of people. You know, I was in Ashland. I was in Berea. And in Berea and Ashland, I saw, you know, hundreds of people coming together for justice. And I was able to, you know, talk to my colleague and friend, Representative, you know, Angie Hatton in Whitesburg talked about how powerful their action was. And then people came, they followed that up. By sharing stories with the, the local city government, right? The local county government, they shared their experiences of Black people in Appalachia. Keep going, keep sharing those stories, keep contacting your local and state elected officials about issues that are important to you, about the, the importance of addressing racial justice. We can't keep running from it. I know it can be an uncomfortable conversation, but when we get through and work through our uncomfortable conversations, we're better because of it. So please keep showing up. We're moving protest into uh, policy, into politics, and that's where we are right now. You joined us in protest, now join us in policy, and then join us in 2022 and beyond as we focus on politics, right? Because we've got to make sure that we have people in office who wanna see us all be healthy and safe.
0: For anyone who would like to send a message to Kentucky legislators about Breonna's Law or any other bill you're interested in, you can leave messages for individual legislators, for members of committees, or the entire General Assembly by calling the legislative message line at 800-372-7181 from 8 a.m. to 4.30 Monday through Friday. Here's Representative Scott. She encourages folks to call and says don't be intimidated.
1: And and I think it's important, Mimi, for people to know when they call that line, they are not going to reach their legislator. So if you're nervous, shake off those nerves because uh, I get it, right? You it, it, it can be, you know, kind of oh my gosh, I'm calling a a legislator. You're gonna get the amazing folks who work at the switchboard and you don't even have to know who your state representative is. You give them your address and they'll get the message to the proper person. So don't worry about calling that 800 number, just do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's. uh, they are are supposed to be representing us. So uh, we should not be intimidated by that at all. That was Kentucky State Representative Attica Scott. Next, we have an interview with Afrolatchian writer and educator Crystal Wilkinson that was conducted by WMMT's former public affairs director Kelly Haywood. I was fortunate to be part of the February 2016 interview as I did the actual recording with Crystal at the Wild Fig, which was at the time her bookstore in Lexington. Crystal is currently an associate professor of English at the University of Kentucky and in January she was named a prestigious 2020 USA Fellow by United States Artists. I am an
2: afro poet, an afro writer. I'm originally from um, Casey County, um, lived most of my life up on Indian Creek down in Casey County. And we are talking to you from here in our bookstore, um, here in Lexington on the, on North Limestone at the Wild Fig Books and Coffee.
3: So, um, what got you into being a writer? When did you start?
2: Well, I think I was probably always a writer. My grandmother always told the story, and it sounds really romantic, one of those classic sort of writer fishing tales so I'll tell you but she she always says that after she'd read all the the books in the house to me uh and then later on I was able to read them myself and after she'd read them all to me and I'd read them all myself then I started writing my own when I ran out and I think that's that was part of it but uh you know the the culture there um one was conducive to solitude because I was a, an only child. I was my mother's only child. And I was being grandparent raised. There on a farm. Um, up in that holler. So I think the solitude. Was one of the things. But I was also sort of born into. Sort of a classic. art, Artistic. Um, mountain family. I mean my, my grandmother. Made quilts. My grandfather whittled. Um, so those were the things that were being done in the family. My mother played piano by ear and was a writer as well. So I think it was sort of a natural inclination. And I was also a very imaginative uh, child. And part of that, I think, was bred from the solitude as well.
3: You identify as Appalachian. And Mm -hmm. as you mentioned before, you you called yourself an Afro-Lachian writer. Um, do you think that identifying as Appalachian makes your experience in the world unique? The older origin? I get,
2: the more I sort of begin to reject labels, but I think that Appalachian is just who I am, and I know that that experience is 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 different from you know my southern counterparts, it's different from my urban. Uh, counterparts we just have different experiences and uh, it doesn't feel like another set of people besides other Appalachians share all of the sort of common experiences that I have so I do think it sets sets me apart from other people in some ways and of course there's always common ground with with people with human beings globally actually but there's something special, I think, about being from Appalachia. I don't think I grew up... I always call myself a country person. Appalachia wasn't a word that um, my grandparents attached to themselves. and wasn't a word that, until, that I attached to myself until I got much older. And I find that to be a similar experience with a lot of my students at Berea. Um, they grew up... You grow up a particular way and you're just good country people. You know, some people refer to themselves as Appalachians and others don't, who may geographically be from Appalachia or culturally be from Appalachia. Um. Well, and I think, you know, as somebody who has this this dual ancestry, as as someone who can be clearly identified as African-American, if you see me, it's not really until... I open my mouth that uh, I'm identified otherwise. And um, I, I find that what you said is true, too. Like, especially if I'm, depending on where I'm at outside the region, if I'm in the deep south, it's a little bit of a difference. But there is always the question, where are you from? <laughs> and then you have to follow that up. And you can either, and, and having that word, Appalachian, is a, is shorthand, is a way to get the answer and move on to the next subject without having to belabor the conversation. Or sometimes the conversation is, is enriching by that and you can have a rich conversation with somebody about, about the region.
3: Yeah. It depends on how curious they are, I think. Yeah. About whether the stereotypes they've heard are true. All right. And that's, I find myself,
2: well, I engage in those conversations now, but I find myself, Wanting to avoid most of the conversations because I don't want to uh, be mad. <laughs> I don't want to have to deal with those uh, those emotions from that point. And, and, you know, what I get, like I said, you can can look at me and see that I'm, I'm African American. But when I start talking and then you get, you know, you see the raised eyebrows and then it's uh, the questions like, you know, do you feel safe there? do you feel safe in your home like it's home you know of course I feel safe and a lot of other questions that come um, down the pike regarding race
3: you again um, use the word Afrolachin and I was wondering if you could describe for folks what is Afrolachin literature and how does it differ from other African-American literature or even southern literature
2: Well, I think that in uh, a lot of ways it it laps over. I taught a class in Appalachian literature at at Berea and plan to do it again. One of the things that I found when I was looking at all these definitions, I was like, oh yeah, that applies. So it's an amalgam of both Appalachian literature and African-American literature and also has the tropes and the devices of ethnic American literature. So a lot of those things overlap. You know, one of the things that Bob Morgan always said that uh, Appalachian literature was defined by the setting and the speech patterns and then having the universal themes of things like struggle and family relationships and then you add music and some other things on top of that. And I think that's what afro Appalachian literature does as well, um, that distinctive trait of Region and self-expression and self-identity is always a part of it. I think a lot of afro latin literature provides a, a vehicle for healing, whether that's some talk about, about slavery or some talk about stereotype. So a lot of those those tropes overlapped. A particular concentration and attention to um, oral tradition, the oral tradition and the oral tradition meaning what you hear in the voices. Um, and those are things that also happen in Appalachian literature. So I think the word, you know, Frank coined that term. And while some people think it's a divisive term, I think that there's something about something wonderful in the naming of yourself and being able to give yourself a an identity that's specific enough that, uh, fits perfectly, and I think that that's what that 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 term Appalachian, Appalachian does. But I also some people see it as divisive, but I see it as a as an umbrella um, and an inclusiveness. Because I, you know, as I've traveled all over Appalachia, one of the things that's been like really wonderful is uh, like when I was in a uh, Radford, Virginia, I met a woman and she said, "Well, you know, we were." Italian and a lot of people always thought that we were different My father worked in the coal mines and but we learned a lot about our Italian uh, culture she says I guess I'm Atalachian and I said yeah I guess you are and then I've heard different people that are in the region through their parents um, through various professions and things and so I met a, a woman who said well I must be Asiaation and I said yeah you're Asiaachian yeah yes you are. And a variety of things that that happen that way. So anytime that you can come across something that gives you a stronger sense of self-identity, um, that it's important to have. The name what we call ourselves is important.
3: Yeah, and I think the term is is broad enough that it gives plenty of room for growth and adding on to what the meaning of it is. Um, right same way as Appalachian that's always going to evolve and change and grow and cut back
2: yeah and I think it's grown you know when Frank coined the term um he was speaking of a particular experience that he had and he was speaking of a particular group of people those you know 10 of us that met in the back room of a coffee house and um, we're trying to write and try to figure out who we were and how we fit in with other writers, but I think since then, in the twenty five years since he coined that term, it has expanded and given a lot of people you know people call the the carolina uh, chocolate drops aphroachian and, and uh, musicians that are aphrolatian and other you know visual artists that are consider themselves aphrodachian and it's um uh, sort of a back-straightening, empowering word that has long since gone on beyond his his uh, original intention. And I think that's a wonderful thing, too.
3: Most certainly. And when I see Appalachian literature gaining more attention all over the country, it, it really strikes me as you began to describe Appalachian literature that... Um, you described it as being very set in place and speech pattern. Mm-hmm. And those are the two most distinctive things I think about all of Appalachian literature. So I'm wondering what does set apart Afrolachian literature from Appalachian literature? Is it the idea of race or is it more? Well, I think
2: the the idea of, of race is is not a simple one. there's a particular set of of struggle and cultural identity that is um, exclusive to African Americans and I think when you extend that to Appalachians it's it's the same thing. So I think that you know some of those things like there is the use of language and I think that uh, if I'm speaking for myself as, as both a uh, writer and as individual, I think that I probably speak the same language as other Appalachians, but there's also uh, a dual speak. There's, there's a, an African-American vernacular on top of that that makes that unique. So when uh, an Appalachian writer is writing the language of their people, they're doing things like calling out the, the long eyes uh, which is typical to Appalachian culture and Appalachian speak, and they're also doing inside jokes and slang that's particularly distinctive to African-American culture. For example, uh, you know, the dozens, this idea of uh, talking about somebody's parents or uh, having inside jokes or sayings that those are unique to African-American culture and those are things that are, that are used... I think the idea of writing against um any historical record uh is something that a lot of regional writers use and writers from other cultures but I think that makes it distinctive too um uh, which is also something that that Appalachian writers do. So a, a lot of it's the same but some of it is different. Just an extra flair on it I think.
3: A variation of experience. Um, yeah. So there's always been the question of whether or not an Appalachian writer should write out the dialect, write phonetically, um, in order to describe the way that we speak to a reader. And I remember the first time I read River of Earth and would read it, the punctuation. Um, does Afro-Aphalachian literature um, write in phonetics or
2: well I think it varies from writer to writer just like it it does with uh, other writers of the region I think personally my first books relied a lot on uh, phonetics I think in in dialect and dialogue when the characters are speaking Um, but my new book doesn't so much and I know that James Steele in River of Earth uh, does that but he also has passages that are written very beautifully that don't have phonetic spellings, and they'll use the occasional word like, you know, "fotch," or something like that, and um, I've learned a lot from those writers, and I've incorporated that into my own writing, although I think that every book tells you what it needs. You know, my new book, for instance, I think I don't rely on phonetics as much as I do nuance to get the points across. So I I think there's a variety. I think uh, traditionally a lot of uh, African-American writers use the um, African-American church experience and some of those kind of things in their work. Legends, myth, magic, songs, that sort of thing. And I do that a little bit as well.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Make it count for something. Yeah,
2: it all has to be earned, I think, in the writing and that's the point. If you if you put the phonetic spelling on on every line, well, and you need to remember you're writing for, I mean, I think, I tell writers this all the time, that you need to remember that you're writing for a contemporary audience. And you want to give the the reader the illusion of real speech, not give them sort of phonetically uh, their real speech. And that can happen with any any identity. I, I worked with a writer one time who was writing about the potato famine, and she was had done her research, and she was really trying to write like the people of that time sounded, and she was really trying to create a, a part of, of Ireland in a particular brogue, and it was so thick that she had buried the story so much deep in, into it that you couldn't get it and she took almost all of it out and would would add just the occasional word which I'd encourage her to do and it turned out to be just such a, a lovely piece of work that a contemporary audience could easily understand and still get the flavor and the, the richness of the culture.
3: So your new book Birds of Opulence just came out in hardback is that correct?
2: Well it's on its way I think I think uh, we thought it would would hit the warehouse this week but it looks like it's going to be next week but um I actually have one of the hardbacks and I don't know if anybody else does yet but uh I've been carrying it around under my under my elbow
3: (laughs) and and you've got a few publications under your belt now but do you still get excited when you hold that book in your hands
2: very much so yeah I've got it in my hand now which the the listeners can't see, but I'm just. Everybody here that's watching can see that I'm just like grinning from ear to ear about it. Uh, it's still the same excitement. Like I remember when um, when Blackberries came out, I got the box at home and uh, opened up the box of the first ones and just could not believe. I mean, of course I cried, but it was just that whole feeling of picking up a book of your own volume, and I kept flipping my hands through the my fingers through the pages and letting the breeze of all those pages hit my face. And it's just a a great feeling. Of course, I haven't had a new book out since 2002. So 14 years um, to have a new book makes it extra exciting.
3: Can you read a passage from the book for
2: us? Yeah, I'd be happy to see. In late August, when Minnie Mae and her sons arrive at the home place, the country feels like it's settling down to rest for the night. A slight breeze rustles the trees and sounds grow up and out around them until the hundreds of creatures, large and small, become one loud voice. It is as if the night has taken up the voices of the good kin, long past, and even Butter and June with their new city ways have to listen. The old house leans and the porch sags, this same old house where Minnie Mae and Henry lived as a young couple. Every spring, the boys come to help Minnie Mae clean up the yard and plant the early garden. In fall, they come help her rake the leaves. Though nobody lives there now, she insists on sweeping the dirt around the back porch into a series of swirling patterns and pinching back the hens and chickens growing in a big white tub on a stump. Butter leans on the handle of the grubbing hole, and June stands holding a clump of weeds the fresh white roots reaching down toward the ground. This is y'all's what for, Benny Mae says, placing one hand on her hip and the other one spreading far and wide from one edge of the knob across the creek to the other side. The moon is out and the farm is glowing behind her. All this, she says, been up under your people's feet since slave times. My mama and daddy worked this land and their mama and daddy before them. Old man Hezekiah started all this back in 1878, just 100 years after Daniel Boone blazed a bloody trail across here, killing every Indian he saw. Old man Hezekiah, he was freed from Virginia, paid $156 for eight acres of land right here. Old time people always said that old Hezekiah was a tree of a man, a master carpenter course a lot of people around here didn't know what was meant by the word opulence but old people old time people say he cut the sign out of the finest woods and carved elk bison foxes and birds all over it and then wrote opulence as delicate as a teacher's cursive with a chisel it's been called opulence ever since here it's true Minnie may loops her arms around the waist of her boys fingers from one hand wrung through the loops of butter's A belt loops, the other resting on June's back. This is going to be y'all's and Tookie's one day. Pap stood right there out by that well and said, that's all a man needs is some little piece of rich earth and a good woman. Reckon he got what he needed in your grandmother, and she got what she needed in him. Minnie Mae shifts her hips to ease the aching through her hip bone, looks from one of her boys to the next. I don't know nothing about being a man, Can't say I've raised you up to be good men, but I've done the best I can. I do know what a good man is. Your daddy was a good man. My daddy was a good man. Good man's more than breath and britches. Man got gumption, woman too. Woman's got to have more gumption than a man sometimes. Woman goes through more things and then's got to help the man bear his burdens. Butter breaks his mother's grip. Mama, I don't see why you don't sell this old place. None of us are set to be farmers. We all got our own lives, good lives. It's just sitting here growing weeds. The house is falling in. He places his hand on her shoulder. You know, you're getting too old to keep putting in the garden and look at the house. Ain't nothing much left here but firewood. You hushed your bad mouth. Can't even see yourself when feasting your eyes right in the looking glass. Hush your ignorant mouth. This ain't about no grade of wood on no house. Mama butter's right. June looks down toward the ground and kicks at the dust. Deep down he knows his mother is the freight train gaining steam that she's always been. Not much meek and mild about her even now. Y'all take me on back home. You can't see yesterday when you don't know what's coming your way tomorrow. Let's get going. Plum ignorant. You're ashamed for God, your daddy, and all your people. Again, the boys who have somehow, without many may noticing, turned into men, some kind of men, stare at their mother as though an old folk's home would suit her fine, with a patronizing glint in their eyes, usually reserved for young children who've gotten out of line. She is angry with both of them, but Minnie Mae's heart still dances with glee when her boys come home. And even though they're adults with grown children, she still dotes on them and fixes blackberry cobbler for butter and corn pudding for June. Even when her legs are hurting her bad, your daddy spit you right out. She says to butter each time he steps his long legs from whatever new car he has purchased. And she rubs up and down his arms. Like they're the arms of her Henry long dead. And she grabs June by the jaws and kisses each of his cheeks like a mother would a boy of five. And of course she loves the grandchildren, even if they are a strange lot. The wives, they're insignificant, don't have the same sweetness about them that the son-in-law has. Joe Brown, now that's a different story. He's like a third son, one without blood but with a bushel of sense. When they get back to opulence from the home place, Minnie May insists that the boys head on back to the city so they won't be driving home too late in the dark. She doesn't beg them back into the house for pie or ask them to spend one more night. Long after Minnie May has watched the taillights of her son's cars disappear into the dark, she stands on the porch and scrapes the mud off her boots.
3: Powerful. <laughs> um- And that's what I love about Appalachian literature, and also southern literature does this really well, is put us in a place so deep that we can almost get lost there even if we've never been. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is just a tremendous power that, that books have, even more so than film or any other type of storytelling. Um, oral tradition can match it, because I think it's the same medium.
2: Well, and Minnie Mae's the the elder woman in this book, and um, I think she represents the sort of matriarchal storyteller. She does a lot of the storytelling. She's sort of the keeper of the word for the family and uh, the keeping of the traditions And these sons who have moved off to the city don't really understand the value of the home place or their history. And she's sort of constantly letting them have it (laughs) about that. And that's why I read that piece. I love her in this book. She's, She's the keeper of the traditions like many mountain women are.
3: As writers, I don't think that we can deny that our personal lives inform what we write. And I remember one of my best writing teachers that I've ever had his name was Tim Skeen and he told me the way to the universal is through the specific I personally am constantly drawing on the family story Mm -hmm. and all of that so how important do you think it is that as Appalachian people we tell our personal stories and be open and honest about our experiences
2: well I mean I think it's essential I mean I think it's essential to to storytelling And getting at the truth through the story um, is essential to all cultures, I think. And I think it's particularly essential to us because I think that Appalachians as a whole were constantly having to defend ourselves socioeconomically, culturally, geographically, just about every way possible. And being able to call up those stories are the only ways that our backs can be straight about who we are, uh, especially if we pay any attention to the outside world. It's, that's where our culture is, is in those stories that have been passed down, those hard scrabble stories, those heartwarming stories, those on-the-porch stories, in-the-creek stories. They're fascinating to hear, and I think that's where the richness lies. You know, even every, like in my family, every meal that's cooked, just about everything has a story.
3: Everything has a story. And another thing that I feel about our experience here is it's always cloaked in, again, the word magic. It's cloaked in mystery and magic. Oh, yeah. Even when you come across the most religious folks in the mountains, there's always that little thread of magic that runs through or superstition yeah and i've not met many people who deny that there's a little part of the magical in our world here
2: yeah i mean i grew up with a two very christian very religious uh free will baptist people but my grandfather was a water witch and my grandmother was a healer like they were always called upon by other people in the community to you know, cure a baby with colic or, you know, someone would call and ask when they should cut their hair for either for it to grow back or for it not to grow back for a while. And my grandfather used to um, remove warts with beans and my grandmother made cool compresses for people to help straighten kids' legs out. I mean, it was just always something going on and my grandfather witched every well in the county
3: another thing that i want to touch on and you being a writer ask you about is there is so many things about the appalachian experience that is very well understood but never really spoken out loud like some of these roles where your place is how you treat your elders And being a mother myself, sometimes I think, well, how did I learn respect? And I'll go back, and I'm like, it was never really taught to me, in a sense. So we have all of these things that we don't talk about, but as Appalachians, we understand it in a particular way. As a writer, do you ever try to reveal those things, or do you you think it's best kept secret?
2: No, I mean, I think that's... That's the, the idea for me is to um, present those things. You know, that's, that's kind of my mission, I think, as a writer and as an Appalachian writer and as a black Appalachian writer to bring those things to the to forefront. You know, when I first began writing, my, uh, my idea, my mission was to bring to the forefront the African-American experience of Appalachian to bring that to the forefront because we were invisible. Like nobody talked about that. There were black people there. I, I mean, to this day, I still will go to a large city in in the United States and somebody will say, where are you from? And I go through all that and you see the puzzled brow and the head cocked to the side. Like, you know, really is that where you, you know, you've always lived there. Well, yes. But now I, I think that, uh, my goal is to to try to be nuanced in my writing to bring forth those kind of things to get people to really understand the culture. This new book, The Birds of Opulence, is about a lot of things. One of the things that it deals with is mental illness and how that's dealt with in these particular households in this town of Opulence, Kentucky. And the other thing are things like what you're talking about, like how... How outsiders are treated And how they're accepted And brought along as part of the family Uh, Because he does Accept the old time ways Like Minnie Mae who you just heard from She really ends up Accepting her son-in-law Almost more than she does her son's Because she appreciates His appreciation for The old time ways So uh, Yeah I'm all about bringing it all out (laughs) Uh, as a treasure. And part of that is to pass it on, you know, to be able to, to to celebrate it and pass it on to other people.
3: What is your hope? What do you hope to share with the Appalachian people? What do you want to leave behind as your legacy there?
2: I mean, I see myself as um, an African-American in Appalachia. And I think this sort of the richness and the vastness of the culture, and particularly of the literature is important to me and so as a person of letters uh and that being my focus i think that's my legacy this development of this afro latin literature class at berea which i've taught even on a community basis um, and some of the writers you know that are outside of the afro latin poets group um, and exposing those writers to to people so that people can see a glimpse into that culture i think are important and encouraging uh, other students to write about about where they're from, and, and to write about their Appalachian culture, their Appalachian culture, uh, however it might be hyphenated, whatever you are, we're all Appalachians together, and have there's some commonalities to our experiences, and there's some variances um, to our experiences. Moonlight pours across the porch like a big bowl of creamy soup. Minnie Mae relaxes into the chair and nods off to sleep. A cat yells like it's hurt somewhere down the street and a breeze takes up the leaves. Somehow Joe had been thinking that maybe if Butter and June went down to the home place everything would fall into place and they'd understand what it all meant. But he can tell by Mama Minnie's posture that nothing good has happened on this night. He is reminded of the time that he and the women stopped for a picnic one summer down at the home place near Mission Creek. Minnie Mae and Tookie packed cold sandwiches and fruit wrapped in tinfoil, foil, and they put a few cans of pop and a rusty blue cooler in the trunk of the car. They spread a couple of old quilts on the ground and watched a flock of geese fly over them. Lucy sat quietly and dipped her hands in the creek, scooping up palms of water, then letting it trickle through her slender fingers. Tookie cradled Kiki in her lap and rubbed her fingers through his hair until he fell asleep across her like a kitten this was long before Yolanda was born. Minnie Mae hovered over the food just like she was at the stove back at the house. She looked peaceful, but she had been talking about Mr. Henry and her boys all day long. From where they had positioned themselves, they could see the roofs of the barns and the old home place. The sun was streaming down and spreading yellow on everything like a painting he had seen once. Right now he can't remember what the occasion was. But he recalls the purest feeling of happiness that washed over him in those moments joe looks over at minnie may her silver head dipping toward her chin and smiles her head bobs down hard and she suddenly wakes a little embarrassed law me she says bet i was snoring she wipes the side of her mouth with the back of her hand joe squeezes her shoulder then opens the front door where they can see the entire family readying for supper. Let's get you in the house, Mama Minnie, he says. You're going to catch a chill out here.
0: That was a 2016 interview with Appalachian writer Crystal Wilkinson, award-winning author of The Birds of Opulence, Water Street, and Blackberries, Blackberries, all available wherever fine books are sold. We end our program with comments from Edward Palmer, who speaks on addressing the roots of racism in our society through policy reforms. Palmer is pastor at the Sign of the Dove Church International. He is a certified diversity trainer, state juvenile justice advisory board member, Radcliffe city councilman, and currently chair of the National Coalition for Juvenile Justice. His presentation was recorded at the January Kentucky Center for Economic Policy virtual conference.
4: We talked about the difference between um, acute compassion. You know, uh, you know the world uh, responded to um, um, the trifecta of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. Um, and, and we're very good at, at responding uh, in an acute way to, to, to these polarizing events. But what, what's needed for this conversation and to really move uh, uh, an anti-racist uh, agenda Forward is chronic empathy and and passion uh, so that we might bring a for bring forth uh, real and sustained uh, change so so let me deal with a couple of things that I've heard uh, in my travels around the country, and the first thing I want to deal with is this I'm not a racist defense right uh, I, I do a lot of diversity training around the country, and everybody's trying to defend themselves uh, from this label of being a racist this I'm not a racist defense. Uh, This defense will not move the nation to a place where racial inequities are are part of our history and not part of our present reality. So that defense will not move us to the place we need to go. And and when we intentionally and aggressively identify and eradicate systemic policies, systemic racism in the form of policy, then we can make uh, that statement, uh, one nation under God, a reality for all people. So we've got to get out of this individualized perspective, I like to call it that myopic view, and really start to look at the broader uh, uh, impact of of public policy uh, in this country. And so I want to talk to you and just motivate you to think about some of these polarizing events as public policy failures and not individual acts, right? So in Georgia, the justice system's initial response to the murder of Ahmaud Arbery was a public policy failure, right? We we oftentimes think about this father and son duel that murdered him, and and and, and everybody's you know attacking uh, the two of them. But there, the, the 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 criminal justice system's response was a public policy failure. In Kentucky, the invasion of Breonna Taylor's home that resulted in her death that was a public policy failure. And 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 rather than attack just attack the police officers we need to really deal with uh, the systemic uh, impact of policies that allow um, for this kind of thing to happen. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, that police officer that murdered George Floyd in plain view of the whole world, that too uh, was a public policy failure. The public policy response to Black Lives Matter, I mean, let's think about this now, the response to Black Lives Matter protests, um, again, was a public policy failure. And then we witnessed last week an attack on our nation's capital where the attackers quote unquote protesters didn't quite look like those involved in the Black Lives Lives Matter protest. And again, that was another public policy failure. So this I'm not a racist defense doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. It's the public policy. That allows for disparate treatment of black and brown people that matters the most. Not the individuals that carry out these, these acts, but the public policy that shelters them, that protects them, that allows for these things to continue happening. Dr. Martin Luther King said, it may not be true that the law cannot, it, it may, I'm sorry, he said it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And that's pretty important. And I agree with Dr. King. We've got to have a conversation about the impact of public policy. Racism is about the policies that govern our public life. It's not about the individuals who may or may not be a racist. It's about the public policy that governs how we interact with one another, how police interact with black and brown communities compared to how they interact with uh, white communities anti-racist policies will identify and eliminate uh, racist individuals. You wanna, you wanna get rid of those, those few and far, far and few in between racist individuals that may be in our institutions? Well, develop inst- uh, anti-racist policy. It will control the behavior of those would be racist individuals. So this thing is about policy. This is about changing the rules of the game to create the equitable outcomes that we all say we wanna see. It's not about individual players because policy will control the behavior of the individuals who serve in our system. We've gotta change the rules of the game. So I'll end with a quote, a quote from Napoleon. The world suffers a lot, not because of violent or or bad people, but because of the silence of good people. Thank you.
0: That was Pastor Edward Palmer. Before that, we heard an interview with Crystal Wilkinson from our archive, And we started the program speaking with Kentucky State Representative Attica Scott about bills she has filed to ensure that Black Lives Matter and to improve the lives of all Kentuckians. Our stories exploring opportunities and challenges for building a new economy and healthy communities in Appalachia and beyond are available at www.makingconnectionsnews.org and wherever you find your podcasts. This is Mimi Pickering. Thank you for listening.